Well, again, good morning. And as we start this morning, I, I want to share just something that's core and near to my heart. I, I love to travel. Uh, it's very rare that I don't have a trip somewhere planned on the schedule. I'm feeling a little bit tired this morning because last night's travel was a trip to Phoenix for a comedy show, and I got back really, really late last night. Uh, but whether it's taking a trip with a suitcase or just taking a day trip to go see a friend, I love traveling. And apparently, I'm not alone. I'm not sure if you guys knew this, but last Sunday, November 26th of 2023, was a record travel day. It was the highest day for air travel in the history of our country. There's a record number of TSA scans through airports last Sunday. And so apparently it isn't just me that loves travel. It's you. It's everybody. We love to be able to get out. And, and what happens when you travel is to see a little bit into the personalities of people because how we travel says a lot about us. And so I want to ask just you guys some questions this morning. This is going to be kind of participation time, thinking about how you travel and how you pack. How many of you, when you pack, are the kind of people that, like me, just carry a backpack? Raise your hand. Backpack people. You're very, very light. Okay? How many of you need this entire cart just for yourself? Okay? Thank you for your honesty. Appreciate that. Uh, how many of you are the kind of people, when you pack, you have a list before you pack? You have everything. I see some of you pointing to your spouses, you know? And I'm guessing the next question, how many of you, it's like 30 minutes before you leave and you're like throwing it all in there? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. Typically, those people attract to each other, you know? And then how many of the kind of people that you never, ever forget anything when you travel? Like, you have no need to go to the store. You're perfect. Okay, how many of you, even when you go on a day trip to Phoenix, you're at Target because you forget something? Yeah, yeah, I'm that kind of person. And so we, we have all of these suitcases here on stage. Um, some of you have very elaborate, um, bright, like this is the perfect suitcase right here because you can see this at baggage claim. Um, and it's funny just to see the different ways that people pack and kind of assemble their things. And, and what's interesting is that, is that when you think about luggage like this, you can like ruin a trip if you mess up the luggage especially if you go long enough. And I would just encourage you, if you ever travel internationally, always pack a set of clothes and all of your medicine in your backpack. Because that way you can like survive. Like you can wash your clothes in the, the sink in the hotel and you can last for a few days on that. Because eventually you'll need to like find your suitcase. What we've started doing in our family is we started buying those little Apple AirTags and sticking those inside our luggage. That way we can track where our luggage is. And I've had friends who've, who've been told by American and Southwest and Delta, we have no idea where your bag is. And they say, I do. It's right here. And they show them the app and they find their bag. It's amazing. <laughs> but what's interesting is that it's easy to address a suitcase issue, but it's a lot harder to deal with our baggage. It's one thing if you can't find your suitcase or maybe you forgot to put something in your suitcase and, and, and that's frustrating at times, but it's a lot harder to deal with the baggage that we carry. And that's one of the reasons why this season that the song calls the most wonderful time of the year is often the least wonderful time of the year. It's not because of our suitcases. It's because of our baggage. And our baggage shows up during this time of year. You might say, Scott, what is baggage? Well, our baggage includes the pain, the anxiety, the sadness, and the anger that we're carrying because of our past. And what's so interesting is that when you walk in on Sunday morning, 
I, unless I asked you to help me personally and bring me a suitcase this week, most of you, almost all of you did not roll in a suitcase like this. Like you didn't come through the front door, you know, the, hey, thanks. Good to see you this morning. You know, I'm going to go over and get my coffee and you're just kind of rolling along with this, you know? Like, if you did, you might get a weird look. Like, are you headed to the airport later? Are you you catching the shuttle here on campus? What's going on? But the truth is, most of us walked in here with this and maybe one of these. Because we're carrying pain and anxiety and sadness and anger. And what's interesting is that when it comes to our past, Our past, it includes our sins. So sometimes the baggage that we're carrying, it's actually our choice or our choices that led to this anger and this sadness and this anxiety and that pain. Sometimes it's the choices of other people, the sins of other people that affect us. We didn't do anything to ask for it or bring it ourselves, but they did. And sometimes maybe the hardest is, is our response to other people's actions, our responses to other people's sins. And so I want to begin this Advent season with you this morning by asking you, I think, a really important question. It's much more important than if you're a prep packer or a last minute packer. It's much more important than than if you ever forget to put anything in your suitcase. And that question is this, what if your load could be lighter? What if that baggage that you're carrying with you didn't have to be so heavy, didn't have to be so large? What if you could travel light? What if you could go through not only the Christmas season, but the rest of your life without so much baggage? Now, I mentioned earlier that today is the beginning of a season called Advent. And Advent is this pre-Christmas season in the church calendar. And the word Advent literally means coming or arrival. Whenever it's used commonly, it's, hey, it's the advent of this. And it means it's the coming of that or the beginning of that or the arrival of that. And within the church, Advent is this season and this time when we intentionally prepare for the coming of the Messiah. That's why Christmas is so much bigger than every other holiday. That's why it's the peak moment of kind of tradition in our culture. Because we spend weeks and months preparing for one day. And we fight over how early we should start preparing. You know, there are those of you who, who get angry when you hear Christmas music before Thanksgiving. You walk into Costco in September and you're like, mm, Christmas already, you know, I'm still sweating. It's still hot, you know. But, but Advent is the season after Thanksgiving is over that we begin to say, hey, let's begin to prepare to welcome the Messiah. And so during this season, we create space in our lives to welcome Jesus into this world and into our lives. And in a time that is often overflowing with junk food and activities and parades and an exploding calendar, we step back and we go, hey, if, if we're going to be people who actually welcome Jesus and celebrate him at Christmas, that's going to require space. And the trouble is a lot of us are like that innkeeper in Bethlehem. When Jesus shows up, we say, hey, I don't have room for you. 
in my busy life. I don't have room for you in my full heart that's carrying all this baggage. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus extends an invitation to us, certainly at Christmas, but every day. And here's the invitation of Jesus. These are his words. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the good news that Jesus offers us. Certainly he offers us this life eternal with him after we die. But in this life, he invites us to find rest for our souls and experience a burden that is light. So this morning, as we jump into this message, here's the big idea this morning. God hears our prayers and he offers us a better way. God hears our prayers and he offers us a better way. One of the challenges every year that I face is that the Christmas story does not change. Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, the angels, you know, I'm not going to find, you know, Curly, Moe, and Larry in there somewhere. Like there's just, if you're, if you're finding new characters, you're inventing things. So I always pray, God, help me to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to me. And I, and I, was, I was reading through this week's message that happened for me. And that, so I have some things to share with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke is the third of the accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. And in Matthew and in Luke, in the beginning of both books, we get these narratives that give us a picture of what happened when Jesus came into the world. And today we're going to dive into the story of two people, uh, a man named Zachariah and his wife named Elizabeth. And, and to understand any passage of scripture, you have to understand context. It isn't just one verse kind of popped out, meaning whatever you want, applying to whatever you want. No, that the best way to understand scripture is to understand context. And the context of Luke 1 is actually what happens in your Bible in between Malachi and Matthew. Like if you have a finger, like put your finger, hopefully you have a finger, put your finger in between, you know, Luke 1. Uh, this is a church for all people, including people with no fingers, you know. My friend M M Matt doesn't have any, so I just wanted to know, Matt, if you're watching, this is a church for you too. Um, but if you open up to between Malachi and Matthew, there's like a page, you know, like Malachi 5 ends, Old Testament ends, and then New Testament begins. And to us, it's just like turning a page. But what you may not know is that in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Malachi and Matthew, what happens in Malachi and what happens in Luke is that there had been 400 years of silence for the nation of Israel. After prophet, after prophet, after prophet, after prophet, after revelation, after revelation, after revelation, after angel, after angel, after angel, it stops. And for 400 years, the people of God hear nothing from God. 400 years is so large, it's hard to comprehend. But let me give you a reference point. 400 years ago, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. 
Imagine that long without anything from God. Imagine your whole life never sensing that God ever spoke to you. Never sensed that God revealed himself in any way to you. And then that happens for your kids. And then it happens for their kids. And then it happens for their kids. And then it happens for their kids and for their kids. Silence. How hard that must have been. How difficult and challenging that must have been. What questions that must have raised up. And so when we open up Luke chapter one, that's the context of what happens. And that's why it's so challenging and wild and crazy. If your Bible is still open to Luke one, here's what we read. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So these are, these are incredible kind of pedigree, you know, the wife, Elizabeth, is from the, the daughters of Aaron, who was the, the brother of Moses. And Zechariah is from the line of the Levites under Abijah. He's from this priestly division. So they're both from really good pedigree. They have really good families, really righteous lineage. Then verse 6 says, Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. So these were really righteous people from really righteous families. And then we read in verse 7 this. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. Now, we live in a world where infertility is not completely uncommon. If you were to stop and think about it, you either have experienced some struggle with infertility yourself or you know someone who has. All of us have one of those experiences. And so you have a nation that hasn't heard from God in 400 years, and you have a couple that has experienced decades of infertility. Not, we wanted to get married, and it didn't happen in the first five years, but we went way beyond childbearing years, and there is still no children. And what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't tell us everything we wish we would know. Like, I wish that the Bible would pop up a little video right here, you know, and it's like a confessional with Zechariah and a confessional with Elizabeth kind of telling us their emotions of what that was like. We don't get that. So I don't know if Zechariah and Elizabeth had baggage from all of that. But I think we would. If you wanted to have kids and you got married and you couldn't have children and that lasted for decades— my guess is you might have some feelings about that. Maybe some anger, maybe some pain, maybe some frustration or resentment, especially in a culture where the sign that you were righteous was you were fruitful. And so to people who were righteous people from righteous families, not being able to have children I would have imagined provoked something. But let's not talk about them for a second. Let's talk about us. Question for you. Have you ever experienced disappointment with God? Hey, I thought this was going to happen, but this happened instead. Hey, I thought my life was going to go over here, but then it went over here. Hey, I prayed for this and I got this instead. 
it is inevitable if you follow Jesus that you will experience disappointment. It's inevitable. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It means that you're normal. And one of the reasons why disappointment with God is so challenging for us is we live in an era of what I call the prosperity gospel. One of the dominant Christian messages that sadly pervades our culture and that we export to the world, especially areas of the world that are impoverished, is the prosperity gospel, which can be summarized as this. If you have enough faith, God will bless you. And so if you're not experiencing the blessings of God, that is not something on God's end. That's your lack of faith. So if you would just trust more, believe more, pray more, read more, do more, give more, then God would bless you. And primarily the prosperity gospel shows up financially in the church today. People teach, hey, if you will give money to the church, you'll get back financial monies from God. Like if you tithe, God will make it rain. Or hey, if you have enough faith, God will make you wealthy. The problem with that is Jesus. Jesus was not wealthy. In fact, he relied on the generosity of some women to support his life and ministry. So if it doesn't work for Jesus, just point of reference, probably shouldn't work for you. But we don't stop there. We move on to health. And we say, hey, if you have enough faith, God will make you healthy. You'll never get sick. You won't have a heart attack. You'll never get cancer. You'll live this long life. This teaching shows up. I experienced the prosperity first as a teenager because I was taught that if I was pure and I saved myself for marriage, this is what you know, you know my friends heard, that when I got married, it would be perfect and mind-blowing and easy and amazing. And so many of my friends and I discovered that isn't necessarily how it works. <laughs> See, the purity culture sold us the sexual prosperity gospel. And then when we got married and we discovered, oh, this is kind of hard. This takes a little bit of work. And it's not always perfect. What happens is that through all of these teachings, a giant burden gets placed on our backs. Where we think that what we haven't experienced in this life is our problem. It's our failure. It's our weakness. And so many of us are carrying on our back profound baggage, like divorce. You're carrying with you that that's happened to you and it gets heavier and heavier. Shame, a feeling that you are unworthy of love and belonging from people and God because of what you did or what someone did to you. Your childhood. Like it's been a long time since you were a little kid. But inside of you is still that little kid. And all of that pain and all of that hurt. Family. That's what makes this season so hard. You got to go see those people. 
Or they show up in your house. And like a time warp, all of a sudden you're back at 7 or 8 or 12 or 14 again. And all those same patterns. Addiction. You're carrying with you this desire to not touch that or not use that or not turn to that. But despite your desire to get beyond it, you still turn back to it again and again and again. Trauma. That season or experience that was so much more than you could handle or comprehend that you find yourself being triggered again and again. Abuse. That person who touched you or hit you or said those words to you. Church hurt. Maybe this is why you're watching online and not here because you just can't step in the foot of a church anymore. Bankruptcy. There's all this expectation during this holiday season that you're going to be able to provide this amazing Christmas. All the while, you know, you're just this close to losing it all. And what happens is that you walk in on a Sunday morning and everything looks great. But the truth is, everything is far from great. Let me give you an example of how this might look for you. How would you fill in this blank? I thought God would blank by now. I thought God would give me a child by now. I thought God would bring my spouse to Christ by now. I thought God would take care of that debt by now. I thought God would give me a clean bill of health by now. What goes in that blank? How about this? But this happened instead. But we're still distant. We still haven't reconciled. We're still not talking. And this, so now I feel blank. What I find so interesting is that a lot of times we don't want to deal with our baggage. This might be Scott, why are you ruining Christmas? I do love you. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. Because I can't see your baggage. But here's what I've discovered. Our baggage is often unseen until it can't be unseen. We try to hide it. We try to deny it. We try to push it away. We try to keep it hidden until something happens and we explode. And it has nothing to do with a little bit of burnt, crisp edges on the casserole. We explode and it has nothing to do with the fact that the person in front of us had the gall to drive 44 and a 55. We explode and had nothing to do with the fact that the Amazon package did not arrive at 3 p.m. It arrived at 9 p.m. And a lot of us go, I don't want to deal with my baggage. But here's the thing. When we refuse to deal with our baggage, our decisions affect others. And so you might say, Scott, I don't want to deal with this. Okay, you can choose that. I I can't make you deal with it. But you don't deal with it while the rest of us do. Let me give you kind of an example of this. Um, my wife and I, when our twins were born, we had three kids under three. And I will tell you, there's a lot of words you can use to describe traveling with three kids under three. Fun is not one of them. And so we traveled from Phoenix to Buffalo with all five of us. 
My son was two and our twins were, uh, well, my son was three, but our twins were about 10 months. And um, I had my son as the lap baby. I got a picture of me here with me and Max. And I see this awe picture, but what I also remember is on that trip, we had to carry four suitcases, two strollers, two car seats, and for two and a half to three hours of the trip home from Buffalo, Maxwell pulled the hair on my arm nonstop. If, if you're a guy and you have arm hair, just start pulling your hair, okay? And stop when you have lunch. I mean, it was exhausting. We had, it, was like, it was like all of this was our stuff for that whole trip. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. And so then, then about six months later, I had a chance to go to Nashville by myself. And, and it was glorious. Because I had a carry-on and a backpack. And I thought to myself, this is so much easier when I can travel lighter. But what I also discovered is that we often don't realize how heavy the backpack is that we're carrying until we drop it. I've been carrying that for 25 minutes. And when I first put it on, it wasn't that heavy. But 25 minutes in, it was really, really heavy. And the good news I have to share with you is that God has heard your prayer. And he's offering you a better way. And he's inviting you this season to travel light. And the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth ends with some really good news that I think we need to hear. So in the time that we have left, I want to share with you three lessons for the weary and for the waiting. And here's the first one. God heard our prayers and he sent a Messiah. He didn't send good advice. He didn't send you five tips to survive the holidays. He didn't send you a a gift-giving or gift-buying guide that'll make your holiday better. No, he sent his son. And in Luke 1, this is what we read, the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw the angel, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. And he will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Every time a priest would walk into the temple, the priest would recite the exact same prayer. And it was a prayer for the Messiah to come. The Messiah that had been promised for hundreds of years. And so for one time in his entire life, Zechariah got up on this day and he went to the temple and he had one job to light the, the candle of incense of, of the incense altar and to pour the incense altar onto the altar so that the, the smoke would rise up from the altar. It looked like we had smoke in here earlier. The smoke would rise up from the altar as a symbol of the prayers of the people rising to God. I believe he probably also prayed a second prayer, which was, God, I want to have a son. 
And doesn't, I'm not really sure which prayer God was referring to, if he was referring to one or the other, but Gabriel's first message to Zechariah was, your prayers have been heard. And this was so meaningful for Zechariah because the meaning of Zechariah's name is that the Lord has remembered. And I have to believe that Zechariah was a man like me and after not having children for decades, every time he saw his name or heard his name and he thought the Lord has remembered, he might have wondered, did he forget? Because if he remembered, he would have heard my prayer. And that's why this, this moment in Luke 1 is this powerful message that God has heard our prayers and he offers us this better way of trusting in him. And this message comes from an angel. And what's so fascinating is that when we read the Bible and an angel shows up, the response is less aww and more, ah! <laughs> like truthfully, when you read the Bible, it's not little cute, precious moments, angels. We've been fashioned by these ladies and this guy. I got nothing against Roma and Della and Clarence. But when an angel shows up in the Bible, it's not cute and cuddly. The response every time is trembling and fear. And whenever the angel comes, especially in these moments during Advent, what we see is that the angel didn't come to bring good advice. The angel came to bring good news. Because you and I don't need more advice. And you can get advice anywhere. Everybody has an opinion these days. No, the good news that comes was the culmination of how Malachi ended the Old Testament, where he wrote, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so what does Gabriel say to Zechariah in Luke 1? He says, and your son will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to what? To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. It's this fulfillment 400 years later. And it's the sign that God hears our prayers and he doesn't send us a listicle with 10 tips to survive the holidays. He sends us a Messiah who is bringing us good news of great joy for all people. Not that there is more for us to do, but there is a gift for us to receive. Here's the second lesson for the weary and the burdened. Our baggage often produces doubt and even disbelief. If you carry this kind of stuff long enough, and if this looks like what you're bringing along with you every day and every year, that eventually what's going to happen is one of two things is going to pop up within you. Doubt or potentially worse, disbelief. 
In verse 18, Zechariah replies to the angel who tells him he's going to be a father. He says, how can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Good husband right there. (laughs) Great husband. I'm old. She's well along in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and be unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And so the entire pregnancy that Elizabeth has, Zachariah doesn't say a word. Now, some of you, frankly, if your spouse didn't talk for nine months, you'd be okay with it. (laughs) But Zachariah sits in silence and he's got a lot to reflect on. And the reason why Zachariah gets this this silent um, consequence from God is not that he has doubts. Because we'll see in a couple weeks that Mary had doubts too. No, Zechariah actually responded with disbelief. And I love how Daniel Darling uh, pieces out the difference. He says, God loves to hear our doubts, to field our questions, and to hear our anguish cries. But it is disbelief that is a sin, our unwillingness to trust that God can do the impossible. Doubt is, God, I'm struggling to understand. Doubt is, God, I have questions. Doubt is, can you give me a little bit more about this? Disbelief is, you can't. You don't have the power to. It's not possible. And often what happens when we carry our baggage or or we carry these pieces of baggage is over time they produce a disbelief in our hearts that God cannot do anything about it and he's powerless to address it. Therefore, we just continue to carry it with us. Here's the third lesson. God believes that preparation matters and his preparation for us is rarely easy. What happens in that nine-month period is that Zechariah is prepared for the arrival of his son. He's prepared for the birth of John, who would go before Jesus and prepare the way for him. And we see the culmination of that preparation at the end of Luke 1. There it says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. Everyone was excited that she was finally having a child. And when they, when they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zachariah after his father. Because that's what everybody did. If your name was Zachariah, your son was Zachariah Jr. If your name was Scott, your son was Scott Jr. That was just the way. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. So the only way Elizabeth could know this is not if Zechariah spoke it, but if he wrote it down. Because he couldn't talk. He couldn't tell her what happened. But she knew his name's supposed to be John. And they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. This is back in the day when we used to tell people they had bad names for their kids. We don't do that enough anymore today. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote four words. His name is John. And they were all amazed. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God. Nine months, not a word. Can you imagine from the first of March until now, you haven't spoke a word. And the very first thing that flows out of Zachariah's mouth is praises to God. See, Zachariah's first word was a sign of his repentance and obedience. He'd been prepared. He'd been transformed. He'd been through this season of awaiting what God was going to do that when that moment arrived, he was actually a different person. Some of you, as you go into this season, this season is going to be loud. It's going to be busy. Maybe your calendar already has you stressed out. Well, if Christmas is a loud and busy season for you, your greatest need might be to slow down and practice silence. You're like, Scott, I can't have silence. My calendar is too busy. Maybe you need to, wild thought, cancel something. Because God is not going to shout over your loud and busy life. And for others of you, Christmas is not this kind of overflowing buffet table of chaos. Your Christmas season is quiet. Maybe even lonely. Maybe that's because somebody who was at the Christmas table last year is not going to be there. Or someone who used to lay in the bed next to you is not going to be there. All those events, they're, they're not there. And so if Christmas time is a quiet and lonely time for you, your greatest needs might be to listen and draw near to God and draw near to others, to resist that temptation to isolate. Here's my conviction. If you invite God to help you unpack your disappointment, you make room for healing and for hope. God's the one who does the healing. God's the one who brings the hope, but you're the, ha- the one who has to open the door or open up the suitcase and say, hey, I'm ready to start dealing with this. And what does this God invite us to do? He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why I said God hears our prayers and he offers us a better way. He offers us rest. So if we're gonna put this message into practice, here's some places where you might start this week with some next steps. First and foremost, might be time to wrestle with this question. What have you been carrying that God is inviting you to let go of during this Advent season? And it might not seem so heavy, but let me tell you, I held two, 16, two uh, eight-pound dumbbells, 16 pounds on my back for 25 minutes. At the beginning, I was worried that I didn't bring enough weight with me from home. By the end, I was really glad I grabbed eights and not 15s. <laughs> Maybe you have no idea how heavy it is until you actually let it go. Number two. I want you to identify an area where you've embraced a prosperity gospel and need to repent. Where have you adopted this idea that if you have enough faith and you do all the right things, that God will bless you? I mean, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they lived in that world. If you were righteous, you had children. 
but they were righteous and they went decades without. And then third, I want you to practice silence for five minutes each day during Advent. So for the next three weeks, that's 21 days, I want you to do 105 minutes of silence. Don't do 105 minutes of silence at once tomorrow, you overachievers. Five minutes a day. Maybe you just drive down the street to the store without any radio on. Maybe you sit in your chair next to the fire without your phone out or the TV on. But allow that silence to be an invitation to God to speak to you. And my prayer is for you, and I've really been praying this, that you would learn that you actually can travel light. Jesus, I thank you so much for this season. It's hard, it's messy, it's complicated, it's difficult, it's emotional, it's intense, it's too much, and so much gets in the way of what is important and true and real and meaningful. And Jesus, I pray that for those who are carrying suitcases this large and larger in their lives, filled with baggage and weights and shame and failure and hurt, that they might hear your invitation in this season to come to you, to unburden themselves, to receive the rest for their souls that you offer, and to discover something to carry that is much, much lighter. We thank you that you don't just send us good advice at Christmas, things we can do better, but you come into our world and you come near to us, Jesus, to turn what is dead into life, to take what is broken and made it whole, to take what it needs healing and to bring mending. I pray that that's the work we see and experience ourselves this year. And I pray that we would make room in our lives to receive you afresh and anew. In your name we pray, amen.